I imagine that there are any number of you who can recall uh, some years ago when we were still a portable church up in the C.W. Shipley Elementary School, we had a remote office in downtown Charlestown on Washington Street, right on the corner of Washington and Lawrence. And there in an ancient building, we had a, an office. And a couple years into our ministry here, um, we were able to hire a, an associate pastor for youth ministries. It was Pastor Billy Hearn. Many of you know him. He's at our plant church up at Spring Mills, a growing, maturing plant church there, Center Point Bible Church up north of Martinsburg. And Pastor Billy was with us for six years, and he was a really funny guy and always had a great perspective of looking at things. And one morning we arrived at the office to find that someone during the night had driven by on Washington Street and had shot our front window with a BB gun. And it had left shards of glass inside the room where the BB had come through the glass and there was a table there. And so we called the Charlestown Police Department and let them know that there had been some vandalism. They wanted to come down and look at it and we were reporting it. And the officer was asking us a few questions. And, and then in his um, work there, he bent over and he picked up a small shard of glass and he held it up. And he got kind of quiet and he said, I know who did this. And we were like, wow, that's great work. And we wanted to get him, you know. And, and he said, I know who did this. Kids. <laughs> Thanks, Barney Fife, man. We know. Well, Pastor Billy had such a funny worldview. And uh, he took that shard of glass and he taped it with a clear piece of tape to the bulletin board and put a little paper next to it and wrote, Kids! And then they put an arrow next to the glass. And that began a, a little bit of an inside joke where whenever things didn't go quite right or if there was a mess, Pastor Billy would put on his Barney Fife voice and he would lean over and he would say, I know who did this. <laughs> and I would say, who? And he would say, kids. <laughs> well, I don't know what you think about kids today, but we're going to talk about kids because... Our Lord Jesus is talking about kids today. It's Matthew chapter 19. This is our text. And we're working our way through this great gospel. And uh, what an interesting little text we have today. It is a short, brief text, but it is certainly well worthy of our attention. And we're receiving from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus some instruction about kids. And we want to take it in well and we want to receive it. It's just three verses. Let's read our text. And... You might want to get your notes handy. What we want to do this morning, we're going to read our text, and we're going to make a couple observations about the placement of this text in chapter 19, the strategic placement of it. And then as we turn our attention to the notes, we're going to review this brief passage. We simply want to make some observations, but out of the observations, in, in my way of thinking, spring uh, some natural questions about children and infants and their spirituality. And I want to answer some of those questions this morning. And I trust it will be a help to you. We're in Matthew chapter 19. We're beginning with verse 13. Just three verses for our text. It just says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. 
there it is, inserted strategically in this passage. What an interesting little text we have. It doesn't tell us chronologically when it happened. We don't know how much time has passed from the previous section where our Lord has been dialoguing about divorce uh, under attack from the Pharisees, trying to embarrass and humiliate him in front of the crowd or even possibly with King Herod and get him in trouble. It just says then or next children were brought to him. So did the Pharisees slink away with their tail between their legs and then waiting on the outskirts of the crowd were these parents with their children hoping to get to Jesus that he might touch their children and bless their children. We don't know, but let's make, this is not in our notes, but let's just make a brief observation about the placement of the text. It'll even lay the stage for next week for us. But isn't it interesting uh, that as Matthew the evangelist records this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we have just spent two uh, relatively brutal messages talking about divorce, which indeed in and of itself is brutal. And it raises all kinds of, of difficulties. And it, it is very difficult on the family. It is especially difficult on whom? It is especially damaging to children. And so we come out of the passage on divorce and immediately uh, Matthew records for us in his placement here, this section, uh, just a brief reminder of how precious children are to Jesus. Well, that should be convicting to us, don't you think? I mean, that we would fight for our children and that we would fight to have a good marriage for the sake of the precious children whom Jesus loves. Interestingly enough, though, it doesn't stop there. Notice that once again, and, and why don't we let our eyes right now go over to Matthew, excuse me, yes, Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. And notice there that Jesus has just completed, not too long before this, some teaching on children as well. And he introduced children to the disciples as a living illustration of the kind of attitude one must have to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn. Okay, we need to transform from our natural self. Turn and become like children. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And whoever, here's the key word, humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about an attitude of complete submission, surrender, humility, no self-confidence, total God-reliance. This is the attitude like that of a child who completely depends upon his parents for his subsistence and his security. So we approach God and Christ with this attitude that I totally am dependent upon you for my salvation, the way a child would depend upon their parents. Interestingly enough, he repeats that in chapter 19. Now, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. This, we understand this line through the, through the lens of chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus is talking, first and foremost, about an attitude that is to be present in people who are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And don't you know, starting next week, Lord willing, we have this extended story, verses 19, 16 through 30, about we call him the rich young ruler because he is an arrogant, self-sufficient, proud, wealthy person who comes to Christ and asks Jesus one of the most 
important questions anybody could ever ask him, and it is, how can I have eternal life? He asked the right question, but when Jesus speaks to him, he becomes exactly opposite of the children or the infants in the passage that he's talking about right now. He is now, so not only does, does this three-verse text illustrate for us the value of children coming off the divorce passage as a convicting reminder about keeping our marriages strong, but it also sets the stage for this next section in scripture where he's going to illustrate like exhibit A, here's what someone who does not have the faith of a child looks like. And so you'll find that interesting, I think, next week as we break this passage down in a most fascinating story of this rich young ruler. Well, if you have your notes handy, we broke our story, our three verses, uh, this um, anecdotal section of what happened in the life of Christ into four parts. And the first thing we see is that we had some determined parents. The parents were determined to get their babies and children to Jesus. I know that they were pretty determined parents. Um, is that we have a parallel passage in Luke chapter 18. Will you turn there? Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 18. And I want you to notice there that as Luke records this section, it sheds a little bit of nuance on the section. And we've learned that, haven't we? Working our way through Matthew, we have found that it is very helpful to look at the other passages, the parallel passages. And in Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning with verse 15, is where Luke records it. And look what he says. Now they were bringing, they, I take that to be the parents, they were bringing, look at it says, even infants, very little children, even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They, the same word used in Matthew 19. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's almost identical to Matthew's passage. Then he says in verse 17, a little bit different, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child... There it is, that like a child shall not enter it. It's an attitude, it's a mindset, it's a heart attitude of complete yieldedness and surrender. No self-reliance whatsoever. By the way, what are you counting on to get yourself into the kingdom of heaven? She put money in the offering plate today and you think maybe God's smiling upon you today? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is referenced in our notes, says, For by grace we are saved through faith in Christ. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Listen, this attitude of a child is what you need to meditate on. Do you have this broken, poor spirit of no self-reliance, total dependence upon Christ alone and His finished work at the cross, that His blood was sufficient to pour out and cover your sins so that a holy God can see you as righteous? Identified with Christ. And you, you accept that finished work only by faith. There's nothing you can do. You just, you just admit your sinfulness and you receive this completed work before a holy God that Jesus did it for me. So the answer would be if someone asks you, if you died today and God looked at you and said, why should I let you into my heaven? There's only one answer. And the answer is, I don't deserve to get into your heaven, but my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, and I'm totally dependent upon Him for my salvation. And that's the only answer you can give God, that through Christ you come to heaven like a totally dependent child upon His parents. You totally depend upon what Christ has done for you. 
Well, we see in Luke 18, 15, back to our notes, that these are even infants. I think that's what's an interesting point in the Luke 18 passage. They were bringing even infants. So these are parents with little babies, maybe little toddlers in tow, holding their hands. And this was not an uncommon occurrence for uh, people in this era to come and find a rabbi or their rabbi at their local synagogue. And on occasion, on special occasions or on, on the calendar year of the religious uh, days, they would come and they would seek, as it were, kind of an Old Testament patriarchal type blessing. Where you think of uh, in the Old Testament where they would lay their hands upon the next generation before they died or on, on occasions and pray a prayer of blessing over them. And these parents would do that for the rabbi and it was acceptable. And they had this precious Lord Jesus, the miracle worker rabbi, and they were fascinated by his teachings and they came and they wanted him to touch their children and to bless their children. By the way, do you pray prayers of blessing over, the, over your children? If you don't, let me encourage you to do that. You're, I'm not saying you're a rabbi or it doesn't really matter. We're all priests if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior. Are you interceding on behalf of your children? Do you slip into their bedroom at night and just watch them sleeping? I've done this many, many times. Lord, would you please bless this boy? Bless this girl, Lord. Father, would you pour out your blessing? Cover them, protect them, use them. Keep them from sin. Bless everything their hand touches. Just pray prayer of blessing, asking God. Uh, the number one prayer warriors for children should be their parents, I think. That you're praying regularly for God to bless your children. So these parents were determined. That's what they wanted. The same thing you want. They wanted God to bless their children. And they were infants. But notice that this was a huge distraction to the disciples. We're back in Matthew 19 for a minute. This was a huge, or you can go to, uh, yeah, Matthew 19 for a second. The disciples were distracted because, of course, they thought of themselves as more important than children. And I guess that this was a distraction. These parents bringing their kids, they were trying to shoo them out of the way. And it was the parents that they were hindering. They were blocking. Blocking the way of the parents who are trying to bring their children to Jesus. And we notice that this then disturbs Jesus. Jesus is disturbed by this. Jesus was disturbed by this. He sees it happening. He looks over and he doesn't like it. And this is where we want to turn to Mark's gospel, the very next gospel in line, Matthew, Mark, chapter 10. And notice his passage. And this sheds a little bit of light on the attitude of Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 14. Now we've heard regularly that he says, do not hinder them. He says it over and over. But notice what he says um, in Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might not touch them and the that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. That's what I wanted you to see. Jesus was indignant, it says. Jesus was indignant underneath Roman numeral three. Jesus was disturbed to the point that the word indignant, which means vexed, it means upset by this. Stop it now. There's, he was indignant, it's translated, and let the little children come to me. Do not, hear it is again, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, there it is again, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. We're back at Matthew chapter 19, and we see that Jesus gave direction. Do not hinder is repeated over and over. Both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not hinder, he says, 
these parents from bringing their children to me. And so he sets aside the disciples and he makes it a priority to receive these children. Now there's our story, there's the occurrence. I simply want to make some observations that I trust will be helpful to us. And then out of the observations, there spring a few questions, I think, that I trust will be helpful. First observation is quite simple. I think it's quite obvious. Jesus cares for children. Would you agree that that's at least one thing we should get out of this text? That Jesus cares for children. I was thinking that in our attempt to live like Christ... It means that we want to reflect a love for children. I hope that Fellowship Bible Church is characterized by a love for children and families who love their children and who are pointing their children to Christ. It occurs to me that a church that is not children friendly is a church that just might not be Jesus friendly. If we're going to reflect the love of Christ, it needs to be to all ages. Jesus cares for children. The second thing I wanted to get out of the passage, and just also relatively obvious, is that most parents of young children tend to be concerned, most parents are concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children. I have seen this over and over. I have seen young people grow up in the church, and then they go off to college, and they kind of quit coming to church. And then they get married, and it's time for them to start a family. And after even a few years of marriage, they still aren't coming to church except once in a great while. And then they have a child. And guess who starts showing up regularly in church? Maybe you've felt that before. You, it kind of grows you up, doesn't it, to have a child? You, you kind of realize all of a sudden life's not just fun and games. We have this baby to take care of. And then you become concerned about this baby. And you think, well... Maybe I don't want this baby to turn out exactly the way I did or to learn the hard way everything I have. And you want them in Sunday school and you want them to be blessed and you want Jesus to touch your baby and, and you come to church. And thirdly, I want you to know that out of the passage, I think it is correct. Parents are correct to point their children to Christ at a young age. I think this is very important. Well... I just was thinking about this concern that many parents have for their children. And, and all of a sudden, it creates a spiritual sensitivity among young parents. And why don't you flip to the text box on the back? And I wanted to address some misconceptions that you might have. I'm, I'm not sure every Sunday who all's here. And as people come and go, I, I think it's important for to, us to address a couple issues that can, that can come out of this passage because there are people who have looked to this passage and, and, and they have concluded, yes, Jesus cares for their children, but they've also read into the passage maybe a little more than is here. And some common parental misconceptions. And one of the first ones that I wanted to clarify and make sure you understand, especially as you're maybe seeking uh, to, to begin to lead your child spiritually or somehow you want your baby to be blessed by God through Christ. I want you to know, first of all, letter A, number one in the text box in the back of our notes, that infant baptism is not taught in Scripture. Sometimes, and some groups of people will read into this passage. And I don't know how they get there, but somehow a practice of baptizing babies has come out of Jesus blessing babies in this New Testament passage. There's no indication that Jesus baptized them or sprinkled them with water. It says that he touched them. It says that he prayed over them. It says that he blessed them. 
But there are entire denominations and entire groups of uh, faith groups that will build an argument. And this is one of their proof texts that we can baptize babies and in so doing somehow bring a special blessing of salvation into their lives. Listen, you need to understand that infant baptism is just not taught in Scripture. It's just not there. you got to read into Scripture to conclude that infant baptism is there. And particularly, it, nowhere in Scripture does it teach that sprinkling a baby or pouring water on a baby in a ceremony of infant baptism in somehow, somehow brings a saving grace to that child. That somehow it, it brings saving grace. So infant baptism is not taught in Scripture and it does not bring saving grace to the child. You need to know that Babies are born with a sin nature, letter B. Babies are born with a sin nature. Now, the book of Romans argues this for all men and how we all uh, are out of Adam, the first Adam. And we need the second Adam, Christ, to save us. We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we first sin. Uh, babies can be pretty young when they start to sin. And the reason they do that, it, it, it's not necessarily just because they are watching you. It's because they're your descendant. They they're human and, and it's in us. We're born into sin. And so we sin because we're sinners. And so you need to understand and don't be confused by this, that, that somehow some kind of ceremonial blessing or infant baptism can somehow bring saving grace to your child. Um, salvation is based upon the faith of the individual. It's based upon the faith of of the individual. Salvation is always and only by grace through faith in Christ alone. So that's one of three misconceptions that I, I listed in that box. But I think this is a good place to detour down to the next text box because you might be asking this question. Okay, if I can't bring my baby to Jesus to lay his hands on him and save his soul, or if, if you're saying that going to my priest or going to my uh, spiritual leader and having some kind of ceremonial baptism or sprinkling doesn't bring saving grace to my baby, then what is it? And by the way, I recognize that not everyone who sprinkles babies or practices the sprinkling of babies in infant baptism believes that it brings a saving grace. There are denominations and people group, groups of faith groups that understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, but they still exercise a sprinkling of babies. We do not do this here, but they still practice a sprinkling of babies as, as, a, as sort of how we do a baby dedication. It is the parents presenting this child before the Lord, and, um, and, and the, the infant baptism of sprinkling is is a picture somehow of God overshadowing their baby and, and they want their baby to grow up and, and to be saved and for God to draw this child unto himself and as though it sort of marks him as a covenant child in some spiritual way in the mind of God. I, I don't really see that in Scripture as well, but I will say there are good people, good Bible-believing people who practice that and they do believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone and that babies need to grow up, as I'm teaching in the passage here, and they need to get to a place where they need to accept Christ on their own. But I particularly am concerned that any young parents would think that somehow by sprinkling their babies, their babies have a saving grace. And that Jesus has somehow blessed them like he did these children here. But it brings another question, which is the next text box down. 
And it has to do with, okay, Pastor Van, um, you're talking about Jesus blessing the children. I'm very concerned about my children. In fact, I want somehow spiritual blessing on my children to the degree that I've had my baby sprinkled and baptized because I really want spiritual blessing on my baby. But you're saying that does not save my baby. Then I think there's another question that can haunt uh, and be in the back of the mind of parents. And that is, well, what if my baby were to die? What if we lost this child, either in a tragic accident or even some of you have lost babies before they're born? What about those babies? They're real humans and they're infant, they're crib death. What about those babies? Well, let's talk about what we often think of as the age of accountability. The age of accountability. What does that mean? Um, age of accountability, what we're talking about here is that an individual gets to a place where they're old enough to recognize that they're accountable for their own behavior and that they are accountable for their own sin in the presence of a holy God. And we sometimes call this age of accountability. And this relates to the idea of, of the, the death of children or babies. And what happens to them then? They were not old enough to understand that they were sinners. They weren't even old enough to know who Jesus was. And they died. What happens to them? And you already said sprinkling won't save them. Well, let's just think about this for a minute. Number one in the age of accountability text box is that you need to know, just like there's no such thing as infant baptism in the Bible, there is no specific age of accountability taught in Scripture. Okay, sometimes people will point to our Lord Jesus going down to the temple with Joseph and Mary, took him down, and they'll talk about the age of 12, kind of being an age where you're old enough now, it's kind of the beginning of young adulthood, you're old enough to know right from wrong, and you have a special um, responsibility to, to, to stand uh, accountable for your own behavior. Well, you who have kids or you who teach school, you know as well as I do that kids are, are different at all ages. Some of you know what it is to have a four-year-old who is so acutely aware of who God is. A five or six-year-old who understands how, how Jesus came and died. And they, they can, it's like they're not supposed to be able to understand abstracts at that age, but they do. It's just remarkable. I remember our daughter Tasha was exceptionally sharp. Our children, by the way, are exceptionally sharp. It's, it's not genetic in any way, but Natasha was a very young, young girl, um, and I should have checked with Janet between the services, four or five years old, and uh, we were in our church in Effort of Pennsylvania, and after a Sunday evening service, coming home in the uh, backseat of the car, she piped up and said, Dad, when... When, I, when we get home, I want to pray and I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. Sure, Tosh, yeah, we'll do that. Um, when we get home, we'll talk. I was thinking, you know, we'll have a little soteriological conversation here and make sure she understands everything about salvation. And, and, and I said, okay, Tosh, we can do that. When we get home, we'll talk. No, Daddy, no, I want right now. Right now. So I pulled the car over and it just, it was the right moment. And the lights were flashing on for her, and we had a conversation, and she prayed as sweetly as can be. Every child is different, but there's no age of accountability really taught in Scripture. In fact, let me emphasize, as I've already referenced, that every child must grow up and enter into salvation of their own volition by grace through faith. That is, it needs to be their own thinking, their own understanding, their own decision. 
And, and they need to come to a place where the Spirit of God is convicting them of sin. And they understand that God is a holy God and that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, out of His love for them to substitute into their place. That His shed blood alone brings the forgiveness of sin. And that's what saves the child. Getting to an age where they understand that and by faith... They accept the completed work of Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they are born again. And then that leads us to point number three, then. Okay, so what if my baby dies before that, what we would call in a proper manner, an age of accountability? I think there is a such thing as an age of accountability, an age where a child gets to where they do understand these things. We just don't know what that age is for all children. So what, what do we teach? What do we believe? Well, I tell you what I believe, and I, I believe that they go to heaven. And you need to know that there's not a verse in the Bible, there's not a chapter in a verse that you can turn to that says, if a baby is too young to understand who God is and how Jesus died on the cross for their sin, they just go to heaven. There's no verse like that in the Bible. So what I call this is a weight of evidence argument. It's a weight of evidence argument. But I think there's some really interesting verses. So I, I felt like Dr. MacArthur summarized it very well with this sentence from his study Bible from chapter 19, verse 14. So number three in our text box, there is evidence in Scripture that, quote, God often shows a special mercy to those who because of age or mental deficiency are incapable of faith or willful disobedience. Listen, the Lord even knows the intellectual capacity of people. And how much they can really understand because there are many, many special people uh, who might not be uh, intellectually at a level where they can understand these spiritual truths. Is God going to pitch them into hell if they die? They were born sinners, weren't they? No, I think that even in this passage, it's reflected. One of the passages that I would use is our passage in chapter 19. Chapter 19. I mean, just read the words. Let the little children come to me, he says, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He's holding up these children. They're part of the kingdom of heaven at that point. Now, did they get out of the kingdom of heaven and back in? I don't really know how to explain that. Uh, but I think the inference there is that these innocent children are enveloped in his mercy as part of the kingdom of heaven. But there are some really interesting weight of evidence arguments. Let me, let me show you in Deuteronomy. Let's look quickly. You can, you're learning your books of the Bible here, aren't you? In Deuteronomy, in chapter 1, we have that interesting passage where Moses is being given a directive by God that he's not going to be allowed into the promised land. They've left Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. The children of Israel are in the wilderness. And they've sinned. They've grumbled. They've been disobedient. Moses has himself been disobedient. And God is, is telling them that you are not going to be able to enter. And there is a penalty. And look what he says in verses 34 and 35 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, And the Lord heard your words, Moses is telling them, and he was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation will see the good land that I swore to give your fathers. Only Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, however you say that, he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, and he said, you also shall not go in there. This is Moses talking. He's telling the people, even, even I will not be able to go in. 
because of the disobedience that has gone on here. And he said that you shall not go in there. Jo Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, here it is, look. As for your little ones, who you said would become prey in the wilderness. The wild animals are going to eat our little babies out here. As for you who said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it and they shall possess it. I think it is even important to note that the promised land or Canaan land in the Old Testament is a type of being in Christ or even sometimes being in heaven. And so I think there's a point to be made there. We have the same kind of thing, a similar point, in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11. It's the last verse of, of Jonah. And Jonah has done what God wanted him to do. He's gone to Nineveh. He's preached the gospel. They're convicted. They've turned away from their sin. And now Jonah's really mad about it. Remember that? Because he hates these people. They're brutal people. And he thinks they deserve judgment. And now he's sitting up on the hill and he wants to see if God indeed is going to spare them or if he's going to zap them with lightning and burn them all up. And he and God have this conversation that's not very pleasant. It's quite ugly for a man of God to have that conversation with God. And God reminds him of something in Jonah 4.11. And he says, look, there are many in that city who do not know their left hand from their right hand. And you expect me to condemn them? And you want me to wipe them off the face of the earth? In other words, what have they done that they deserve to be wiped off the planet and judged for eternity? They don't even know their right hand from their left hand. That would be age of accountability, I think. And so there's the weight of evidence arguments that um, the, the most familiar, and many of you would point to this even yourself probably, this is often the passage I'll use when I have a graveside service for a stillborn baby or if there's a crib death and we have a funeral. Often I'll use this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You don't have to turn there, but do you remember King David had an affair with Bathsheba? And, and a result of the affair that they had was they had a baby. Bathsheba becomes pregnant, out of wedlock. God is not pleased. One of the things that God decides to do is call that baby home. That baby's not going to be allowed to live. David is so distressed. He takes off his kingly robes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He grieves. He wails. He doesn't function well. He won't eat. The servant's staff and the servant's quarters are all very concerned about him. And the baby continues to get sick. And then finally the baby dies. And the staff huddle up and the servants huddle up and they're like, you got to be kidding me. This baby died and look at our king, look at our ruler. He's been so distressed when the baby was sick. When he finds out that the baby dies, he's liable to take his sword and whack off some heads around here. He's going to be so upset. David sees them whispering. He figures it out. He says, the baby's dead, isn't it? And they, they nod, yes, the baby's dead. And David gets up, goes and takes a shower, puts his kingly robes back on, sits on his throne and gets back to work. And they're like, what's that all about? What, what is this? And David says, this child can no longer come to me. I won't hold this child on my lap. This child isn't going to be in my home. But one day, I will go be with that child. 
And he had the hope of the resurrection. He had the hope of heaven. And we know that David was a righteous man. And that he was confident and at peace that that child was in the presence of the Lord. Weight of evidence argument, granted. But I think that the evidence is there. And so I think that if you've lost babies, for some of you it even occurs to me that if you've even aborted a baby, you'll see that baby in heaven. I really think that. Take hope and comfort in that. All right? But don't be confused. While we're on the back, let's just look quickly at two and three, and then we need to wrap up the blanks on the front for you. A couple other parental misconceptions. Not only is infant baptism assures my child will go to heaven, but it is best for parents not to overly influence their children's faith. Children need to choose for themselves what they will believe. We're in the text box. Under common parental misconceptions, number two, it is best for parents not to overly influence their children's faith. Or they need to let their children choose what kind of uh, life of faith they're going to pursue. I think that's utter nonsense. And that's utter nonsense. Number three relates a little bit. And you think young children can't really understand what it means to love and follow Christ. That's not true. Young people can know what that is. Very young children know what it is to love Christ. The myth or the misconception number three is that young children cannot or can't really understand what it means to love and follow Jesus. Let's flip our paper back over. Let's finish our observations. I'll fill in the blanks on the few more talking points that I didn't get to. And hopefully it'll be a little bit helpful to you. So we've had this little story of the children and the infants being brought to Jesus. we've, We've seen that the parents were very determined. The disciples distracted by it. Jesus was disturbed by their distraction. He gives direction to not hinder the children. Jesus cares for children. Observation number one. Most parents are concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children when they're first born. Parents are correct to point their children to Christ at a young age. They can learn about Jesus at a young age, and they ought to. First of all, it's biblical. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, When you rise up in the morning, when you go down lie down at night, when you walk during the day, always have the scriptures before you, ever before you. Does that mean we walk around with the Bible mowing the lawn? Does it mean that we walk with the Bible open and talking to our kids about the Bible in Walmart? No, that's utter nonsense. It simply means that it is characteristic of our household that we are passing truth on to the next generation all the time. I mean, that's um, number three under a few more thoughts. It kind of fits with number three under a few more thoughts. Be continually aware of the influence, the daily routines, the daily routines of life have upon the spiritual trajectory and growth of your children. That's Deuteronomy 6, that we're seeing the world through the lens of Scripture. Yes, we're having our children memorize Scripture. Yes, we're reading God's Word together. Yes, we're praying together. But we're also just experiencing life Through the grid of scripture. That's why when grandma dies, take your children to the funeral home. They need to see grandma in the box. They need to understand that you don't live forever. You don't ride away on a cloud. Teach the truth. They can handle it. They can understand and grasp it very quickly, very rapidly. That's why when something tragic in the community happens and your children know about it, you talk about sin. You understand it through the grid of Scripture. And they they are taught these things. And so it's biblical. Psalm 145, back up under observations number three. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's our job. 
to communicate truth to the next generation. Not only is it biblical, but it's practical. 85% of all people who accept Christ as Savior do so between the age of 4 and 14. 85% of all people, it's a proven fact, accept Christ. Make a decision to follow Christ between the age of 4 and 14. You think it doesn't matter to point kids to Christ? It very much matters. Another observation that will not take time to, to expand upon is that there will always be detractors. There will always be detractors. There will always be those grouchy disciples. God forbid that it would be grouchy church members that detract boys and girls at Fellowship Bible Church from following Christ. May it only be the joy of Christ that they see in your life. That you would encourage children. And that we would be pointing kids to Christ through our camps, through our Sunday school, through our Wednesday nights. Holding babies in the nursery matters. Sign up. Be a part of it. On a few more thoughts that I wanted to encourage you with. I wanted to take a little bit of time and I wanted to encourage, not discourage. I wanted to encourage that there is a mandate for the Father. When it comes to pointing kids to Christ, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. But raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, I know when I look back over our parenting, Tasha's 32 going on 33, Jonathan's 19. I think that if anybody ever discouraged our children, it always came from the father. Cross, angry words towards their mother, grouchiness towards them. Bringing down the hammer for the slightest offenses. What's wrong, man? Encourage those kids. Fathers, I particularly wanted to just challenge you to love your kids' mothers and lead in your home with grace. I remember I ran into a story by Chuck Swindoll. Let me take a minute and share it, and we're almost done. Chuck Swindoll tells a story. Pastor Swindoll tells a story about when he was in Dallas Seminary. This is illustrating the power of fathers' words to their children. Swindoll writes, During my days in seminary, there was a young man there with a very large birthmark across his face. It was crimson or perhaps a bright ruby red that stretched from the eyelid on one side across the part of his lips and his mouth down across his neck and into the chest area below the neck. We were fairly close friends, so I asked him on one occasion how in the world he ever overcame that mark on his body. I mean, he used to make his living in front of the public with that birthmark. His response to me was unforgettable. He said, oh, it was my dad. He said, you see, my dad told me from the earliest days that I can remember, son, that's where an angel kissed you and he marked you out just for me. You are very special. And whenever we are in a group, I'll know just exactly which one you are. You're mine. He said, it got to where I felt sorry for people who didn't have red marks across the front of their face. I think only a dad could do that. Only a dad can do that. That's not to minimize, number two, the role of the mother. So strategic, illustrating there. Number three, be continually aware of the influence of the daily routines. We've already talked about that. Proverbs 22.6 Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And some of you, that verse bothers you because your child hasn't done what you want. Listen, 
You need to stop having false guilt. Children are not robots. And that verse is a, is a wisdom principle. I think, you know when I think about that verse the most? I think about it when I'm splitting wood. And that my dad showed me how to split wood. And I split wood with a maul exactly the way my dad split wood. And I'm old now. And I'm doing it the way my dad told me. It means that kind of thing, too. And for some of you who think you're too late with your kids, I tried to encourage you in the last text box. We'll not talk about it. But don't give up. If you don't have kids in your home anymore, or you weren't born again when the kids were in your home, and you don't feel like you raised them well, listen, you just keep praying. You keep living Christ today. It might be at your funeral where they'll get right with God. And you might never know it this side of heaven. Finally, number four, do not underestimate the role of the church. And I was going to spend most of my time on that point right there. <laughs> Do not underestimate the role of the church. Do you know what it means to me that Joellen Toothman taught my boy the Bible at the earliest age? Do you know what it means to me that Wayne McKenzie had my boy in fourth grade and taught him the books of the Bible? He knew him, but taught him, reinforced what we were doing at home. Taught him to bring his Bible to church. I'd get after my son to bring his Bible to church and he wouldn't bother but when he saw Mr. Wayne, he'd run down to my office and get a Bible so that he could have a Bible in his hand. Spiritual oversight of other people impacting the lives of my children. That's part of what goes on at church. I need spiritual impact of godly people pouring their lives into my kids. You do too. That's church. Children matter to Jesus and they ought to matter to us. Amen? And let's stand and close in prayer. Thanks for your patience for about the fifth week in a row here. Will you bow your head just for a moment? I look over here. I see Jared Golnitz. He got a brand new baby last week. Congratulations. I see Shoopy celebrating their birthdays today and their grandkids are here. We have illustrated across the room how the families work. Would you just bow right now? Would you, heads of households, pray a prayer of blessing on your home and your children? If there's any fathers here that haven't been doing their role, would you ask God to show you how to start over with your kids? And as a church, can we pray together that God would bless our children in this wicked world? And so, Father, help us. Help us to, to know how to raise up our children to love Christ and from the youngest age be pouring Scripture into them. That they would understand they have a creator God and they would not be deceived by evolutionary distractors or by wicked friends when they go to college or fall away when they're in the Marine Corps. But that our children will be blessed by you and follow hard after Christ in every family, in every home, and in this church. That children would be so important to us. We'll invest in them the truths of eternal and everlasting life of your word. Help us do this, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.